Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, founders, and thank you for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Josh Merrill, CEO of Confirm, a data-driven performance management platform that's raised over $11 million in funding. Josh, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Super excited for the conversation, and I'd love to begin with talking a little bit about your history and, and where you worked, and specifically, I want to talk about your time at Carta. So you joined the company in May 2013. Take us back to May 2013. Yeah. So I was a founder before Carta. My lead investor was a brilliant guy named Manu Kumar, who started Canine Ventures. He was the seed investor in, uh, gosh, Twilio, Lyft, just tons of unicorns. And my company was sort of circling the drain. And he said, hey, I, you know, I want you to meet this other founder in my portfolio. His name is Henry Ward. I think you guys would get along. So I met Henry. The company at the time was called eShares, remembering back to 2013. And ultimately, I joined as the second employee. What did you see in the company to make you say, yep, that's an opportunity that I want to spend my time on? And did you have any idea that it was going to become as big as it became? No, none of us did. To be honest, what I really liked was the people that I got to work with. I understood the problem very well as a founder. Like I had that cap table problem and I hated paying my lawyers to solve it. But I think we kind of thought that like we do this for like a year and a half and then it would fail and then we'd actually go really start the company that we wanted to build. <laughs> Uh, and lo and behold, that is not what happened. Carta did turn out to be wildly successful. And on reflection, that's a much more preferable outcome. What do you think Carta got right? I'm sure there were many things that have led to the success, but what do you think the company really got right? Yeah, it's interesting. Like, I think when I look back on all of the decisions that we made, I really can attribute the success to just a few of them. And they were really sort of go-to-market and, and sort of product-led growth decisions. One decision was focusing on selling directly to CEOs in the long tail of startups. So we had tried, for example, selling to law firms. Law firms were, were the original customer. They were actually the ones managing cap tables. So we tried to sell them software and they didn't want to buy it. So, you know, we tried that. We tried going through investors. And then it was like, I want to say it was like New Year's Eve of like 2013 when we were trying to get, like, get our homepage out the door. And we were like, you know what? we tried everything else, like, let's just go for CEOs and see what happens. And that actually turned out to be the right target for our messaging. And the second was a product decision, which was, you know, when you sign up for Carta, you're going to issue electronic stock certificates to, to all of your investors. And that was actually something pretty novel at the time. There weren't any other products doing that. But what it really meant was that when one seed stage company would join the platform and pay us a really modest amount of money, what was actually happening is that they were bringing 20 investors on board as well. And now those investors sat on boards who would then tell their portfolio companies about us. So that was sort of the product-led growth. But it was really just a couple of decisions out of all of the decisions that I stressed over that made the difference. Hmm. Super interesting. What about founders that inspire you? Who comes to mind when I ask that question? Oh, gosh. I got to tell you, there are so, so many. But I will actually just throw out Henry Ward, who is the founder of Carta. I'm not suggesting like he's the greatest founder in the world or whatever, but I love him. And I got to have the experience up close of seeing all the successes, but also all the mistakes. And I think that when we look at founders who are sort of public figures, we get sort of one version of their story, but we don't get the whole story. 
And I was really grateful to spend six years actually reporting to Henry and just seeing the way that he thought about things, the actions that he took, the choices he made. So he would be at the top of my list. I had, of course, heard of Carter before, but I, I really started paying attention to Henry around COVID when they had a round of layoffs. And I remember the world was in an extreme place of uncertainty. Everyone was kind of freaking out. Everyone was starting to do layoffs or some companies were starting to do layoffs. And then Carta did their layoffs. And I remember the blog post he wrote, just kind of talking through everything and the level of transparency and how he communicated the problems. I think it was just a very unique and a very effective way to communicate for news like that and bad news like oh, that. Totally. Do you remember that blog post? I, not only do I remember that blog post, I remember Brian Chesky publishing almost the same blog post a month later when Airbnb did their layoffs. It was a model. I mean, I think the way that Carta approached that riff was a model for how companies should do layoffs. You know, it's never fun. It's never a fun thing to have to do. But yeah, I mean, he walked through all of the decision making. You know, it was humane. It was transparent. I can't think of a better way to do a riff. Makes sense. And on the topic of angel investing, let's talk about some of those investments that you've done and really what you've learned from that whole process. So if we just dive into that, what are some of the big takeaways that you've learned from being an active angel investor? Yeah, it's a good question. So first, my first caveat is like, I wouldn't ever profess to be the greatest angel investor. You know, I've done maybe, I've been in maybe 50 or 60 deals now or something like that. And I think what I would say is like, what I kind of look for is like, there's kind of this like short checklist of things that make a story or a deal like really tight. And I'm, I won't even get into like the deal mechanics. Let's just assume that like, it's a basic seed or series A or series B round. It's just like, do they have a great team? Do they have a good go-to-market plan? Is the product solid? Do customers have great things to say about it? Are they referring? You know, does the business model make sense? Like, it's just kind of this short checklist of things that I really like. And if it has that, then I'm in. What about books? And the way we like to frame this, we got this from an author named Ryan Holiday. He calls them quick books. So a quick book is a book that like rocks you to your core, really influences how you think about the world and how you approach life. Do any quick books come to mind? So you may be disappointed with this answer, but it was a book that I think I read it back in 2014. It was Peter Thiel's Zero to One. Never heard of it, Josh. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. Well, you know what? What it really did for me, so obviously the book is about monopolies and specifically network monopolies, but what it reframed for me, I think as human beings, we're much more comfortable thinking in terms of normal distributions. That like, there is this idea of like an average and then there are like some things that are below average and, you know, some things that are above average. But fundamentally, the world kind of converges on this idea of like normal, you know, like this average. And I think what zero to one opened up for me was that's not actually the way the world works. Like the world is actually distributed in power laws, not just the world, but nature itself. And they're difficult to think in. But when you actually start looking for power laws in the world, you just see them all over the place. And if you accept that, it's a really different way of thinking. That's also one of those books that I read, yeah, probably around the same time. And I haven't read it since, but I, I do need to probably go back and reread it again. I think the version of myself who would read that now is very different than I was 10 years ago or however long ago when it first came out. So I'll have to double back on that one. It's really good. Yeah. But I think that was like my big takeaway was like, oh, actually, the world is not normally distributed. The world is distributed in power laws. And like what side of the power law that you end up on really determines quite a lot of your happiness. <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> I love that. All right, let's switch gears now and let's talk a little bit more about everything that you're building today. So how we'd like to yeah. begin this part of the interview is really focusing on the problem. So what problem does Confirm solve? 
Yeah, the problem that we solve fundamentally is measuring employee performance. And today, the primary tool that we use to do that is the performance review. It's that typically five-point manager rating scale that, again, you know, averages around meets expectations. The reality is that methodology is 100 years old. It was invented by the U.S. military at the end of World War I. And the way we work today is completely different. So today we work in networks, we're collaborative, we're creative. And the way that we work has transformed, but the way that we measure that work is sort of frozen in time. And so we have a new take on the performance review that reflects the way we actually get things done, but also reflects the way that talent really distributes, which is in power laws, not bell curves. When it comes to your marketing philosophy, how do you think about the marketing philosophy? Well, in our particular case, so it's hard to separate out, out like the marketing from the go-to-market. The reason I say that is like, if I were to use Carta as an example, we had a sales team and they were fantastic, but what they had behind them was really good product-led growth and really good virality through the product. Carta didn't have a marketing team. I want to say we were 150 people before we hired a marketer. Confirm is totally different. I mean, we're using, you know, it's enterprise sales. It's like, you know, sales team driven. So it's very different for us. So like we had to get marketing early on and invest in it. But I would say that in general, the thing that I have learned from marketing from now having done it for a few years at Confirm is number one, it's a noisy world. And like, you just got to be willing to, you know, take a swing with your messaging and your targeting. And number two, it's less about, I think what I thought would happen, which would be like, we'd try all these different channels and then there would just be one that we could just like pour money into and we would just double down on that. And I think what I'm learning is that's not really the case. It's more about like, how many different ways can a single person hear about you such that they go, oh, I'm, I actually am going to take a second look at this. Or are they ready to, once they get a recommendation from a friend or colleague, are they ready to actually act on that because they got some validation somewhere else? So those are maybe a couple of the things I'm learning about marketing at Confirm. When I was looking at the website, I noticed right away the big header, let's end the performance review nightmare. There's a 360 yeah. all crossed out. This all plays into something that I've written about a lot and I've, I talked a lot about of the importance of having an enemy for your company. And then also right. this idea of kind of going negative, which I would say you've done in the, in the header there. Did you have any pushback from your team or were you the person who's pushing back on marketing to say, hey, let's just focus on the features, let's focus on the benefits, as opposed to saying performance reviews are a nightmare? I don't remember exactly how we came to that decision, but I remember everyone being a little uneasy about it, which is good. You know, if you look at any of the competitors in this space, any performance management platforms, like what you tend to see are very aspirational. The color schemes are all very light and airy. And the reality is they don't deliver on, on that. It's the performance management is still a nightmare, even if you use, you know, Lattice or Caltrap. But we felt like it was more of an acknowledgement of the reality of performance reviews today to just come out and say like, yeah, they are a nightmare. So that was a decision that, yeah, there was a little bit of nervousness around it for sure. The importance of having an enemy, absolutely. And I would say performance reviews are an easy target. Believe it or not, when we were making a lot of these decisions at Carta, the enemy was law firms. You know, we were selling to founders who were afraid of calling their lawyer because they'd be billed in, in six minute increments. So yeah, it is a very helpful tactic. And when you say that, you know, ending performance reviews, who gets offended by that? Who are the legacy companies or who are the people who are in HR who hear that and say, this Josh guy's out of his mind? You know, I think that there's a certain group of people who think of them as sort of a necessary evil and that there is sort of this like one way to do performance reviews because they've always been done that way. So we definitely, you know, when we get into like the sales conversation, we have a new methodology 
that I should just mention, we use a science called organizational network analysis. So if you've ever done a performance review, you're probably used to talking a lot about yourself and your accomplishments. If you do a performance review on Confirm, the questions that you'll answer are things like, who do you go to for help and advice? Or who around you energizes you? So things like that. It's a very different, you're sort of turning the performance review on its head. And it's very easy for an HR practitioner to hear that and want to poke a lot of holes. You know, they'll ask questions like, oh, well, you know, what about bias? And they don't necessarily take the time to like ask the same question about the process they're already using. Like, well, yeah, what, what about bias? What about a manager that's biased? And, you know, all of an employee's future growth and advancement is dependent on that one person's opinion. Uh, can you see a problem there? There's not a lot of first principles thinking. <laughs> so, so yeah, it does make some people uncomfortable. Absolutely. When it comes to Ona, did you invent that technology? Are you licensing that technology? Or is it a methodology that's just out there and open source and then you've built on top of that? The latter. So it's a methodology that's been used in certainly in academia for probably 20 years. It's, it's just never made it into the HR toolkit. Why do you think that is? You know, there are a lot of things that we do that don't make a lot of sense. I would say that there's a, a lot of inertia around things being done a certain way and being able to sort of plug and play a traditional performance review. But I think there are a couple of things that make this the right time for it. One is, as I mentioned, we work in networks. So like if you weren't using, you know, Slack, right, or Zoom before the pandemic, you definitely are using it now. Now, I'm putting aside tech companies because we are often the first to pick up those tools, but most companies in the world are, are not as progressive. So we've gone from, you know, working in offices to often working from home or from different locations. We're using networks. So there is this change in the way that we actually work, but the way that we measure that work, that hasn't changed. Makes sense. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. When it comes to the market category that you're in, how do you think about your market category? So we are in the performance management category. There are definitely, I think a younger version of myself would have been much more excited to say that we're creating a new category. And, you know, I, sometimes like I see pitches and things like that, that talk about like, we're, you know, category creation and all this stuff. And nowadays I look at that and I kind of go like, my reaction is like, that's not a good thing. When you create a category, there's a tremendous amount of education that goes into helping people understand what it is you do because they don't have a mental model for it. And furthermore, like if you're selling to enterprise, not only do they not have a mental model for it, they don't have a budget for it. And you wanna be able to say like, this is the line item that we slot into. So I would definitely say we're improving a category, but certainly not creating one. Yeah, that's something I see a lot of founders get wrong when it comes to category creation is it, it sounds so cool. It sounds so sexy that I think a lot of founders end up just doing it because it sounds cool when in reality, they would be way better off just taking a challenger position for that established line item and, and trying to make the case for why they're better or faster or cheaper than whatever else is out there in the market. So that, that makes a lot of totally. sense. Yeah. From uh, one of my favorite lines from Moneyball, the, the first guy through the wall always gets bloody. <laughs> Such a good line. Yeah. Now, how have you seen your messaging and positioning evolve over the last, let's say, year? So I would say that our messaging has become more confrontational and more challenging. 
we created sort of our brand identity and a lot of our messaging oh, maybe two years ago, something like that. But we weren't quite as in, in your face as we are now. So we have no problem, for example, saying that 360s are completely useless. We have no problem saying that manager ratings are mostly bias and they're garbage. So I would just say it's become more challenging, more confrontational. And that really was a response to the realization that there's just a lot of noise out there. And you just, you have to be willing to take a risk to cut through it. We actually talk about it. We refer to like truth bombs. So all of our marketing, all of our messaging is always centered around a truth bomb. Can you give us some other examples of truth bombs? Yeah. You know, one of them actually comes from our own data. You've probably written, you know, if you've ever done a performance review, you've probably done a self-review at some point where, you know, you'll answer a question like, hey, how do you want to develop in the next 12 months or something like that? And we actually looked at our own data and we said, how, when a company asks that question, how much time does the employee spend answering that question? And how much time does the manager spend reading that answer? And what we found was an employee, you know, you ask an open-ended question like that, an employee is going to spend about seven and a half minutes answering that question. The manager is going to spend eight seconds reading it. And obviously that's a waste of time. Right? <laughs> and so that's one of the things that like, yeah, you know, we'll build a little campaign around that fact and put it on LinkedIn. And some people disagree and other people say like, yeah, I get that. I'm in. Can you share any numbers that highlight the growth and traction and adoption that you're seeing? Yeah. Well, I would say, so we're probably going to end this year at about double the revenue of last year. I think we'll probably do, well, I think we'll probably exceed that in 2024, just kind of looking at the pipeline. And yeah, what other numbers can I throw out there? I mean, our average, you know, in general, like we've been pushing really hard up market. So a year ago, our average deal size was something like $24,000. Today, you know, we're getting up to about $70,000. What have you learned from going up market? Oh gosh, it's harder than it looks. So at Carta, for example, I mean, I remember how excited we were when we got our first Series A customer. And then it was, uh, gosh, at least a couple years in before we like really started to move up market. With Confirm, we started much, much, much earlier. So our very first customer, this is when it was just me and, and Dave, my co-founder. So two of us in the company, our very first customer was 800 employees. And then since then, it's just gotten bigger and bigger. But it's hard. I certainly underestimated how hard it would be. I would say like there's a security aspect to it. You know, you got to get like your SOC 2 type 2 or any other certifications. But that's actually almost the easy part because you have, you know, you can go to a provider like ThoroughPass and you can, you know, get a SOC 2. The harder part is actually like, God, the go to market. I mean, there's so many more people who have to sign off on a decision or at least not get in the way. Continuing support integrations are, you know, almost like the starting point when you sell enterprise software. It's like, what else does this integrate with? And then you build the product. So it's a really different motion. Yeah. Altogether. How did you convince that 800 person company to give you a shot and be customer number one? Oh, easy. It was Carta. Um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They were our very first design partner. And I don't want to make it sound like it was actually that easy. We were working with people who I actually hadn't worked with before. But they did definitely take a, a risk by choosing us. What about customer number two? So what I would say about a lot of our early customers is they really all came through relationships. It wasn't like we just spun up this like sales machine overnight. It was like posting to the, I think our second customer came from my co-founder, Dave, posting to one of the like alumni groups that we were a part of for startups. And that was our second customer. And then they referred our third customer. And that was it. I mean, it really was just like just trying to get this flywheel going. And that's way before we had messaging 
before we really knew what the product was, it was very early. Yeah. As I mentioned there in the intro, you've raised over 11 million to date. What have you learned about fundraising throughout this journey? Really two things. One is certainly the importance of relationships. Almost, I would say maybe half of the investors in Confirm are people who I knew in the past and really liked. So as one example, you know, we have Andrew Parker on our board who was a partner at Sparrow Ventures. He was at Spark Capital when he led their Series A investment into Carta. And then ultimately Spark led the Series B and he joined the board. And I had to work with him for years. And he was just one of my favorite, favorite people. And I always said like, boy, if I had the opportunity to, to work with him again, like I would take it. And so I'm very lucky that he's on our board today. And I can you know tell that story about many, many of our investors. Renan Bar-Cohen at Resolute, who, who's fantastic. So I would say, yeah, the power of relationships and in general, you know, I spend a certain amount of my time today trying to get to know the investors that I want to work with a year from now. And the second thing is really just the power of storytelling. You know, there is this, you can Google like, you know, startup pitch deck example, and you'll come up with like the 10 slides that absolutely must be in your, in your startup's pitch deck. Well, no, that's not really right. Like that's, it's not about covering every single point that, you know, Y Combinator or first round or whatever says has, that has to be in your, in your deck. It's really about telling a story. And a lot of times it starts with the problem that you're trying to solve and goes into the solution and then why that solution makes sense and how it takes you into something bigger, et cetera, et cetera. And I think at the end of the day, investors just, it's just like, just tell us a good story, you know? Is this like the Andy Raskin strategic narrative structure for a story or how do you structure your story and structure the narrative? Yeah, you know, I've heard about that, like the world's best sales deck ever. Yeah. And I think that that actually came from Zuora, if I'm not mistaken. But, you know, there's no like one right way to do it. I do find that starting with the problem is a really good starting point. The things that I usually want to know are like, what's the problem? What's the solution? Why does the solution make sense? How does that take you into something bigger? Like if everyone in the world is using your product, what's different about the world? Like what has changed? So yeah, there's no one right way to do it, but it's whatever the way is, it's just got to flow. Based on your experience with Confirm and of course your experience with Carta, what would be the number one piece of go-to-market advice you'd give to a founder who's just bringing their product to market? Oh gosh, I would say the earlier you get your product in front of a person who's got to make a, a buy or no buy decision, the faster you will learn. I can't tell you how many startups I've seen fail because they just like waited too long to have like the perfect product or to have the perfect message or, or for things to be just right. Like it's just accept that it's going to be, you know, messy and chaotic. And oftentimes the more chaotic it is, the more successful the company becomes. <laughs> that would probably be my biggest, if sometimes I have to re- remind myself of that. It's just like, I think Reed Hoffman said, um, you know, if you're not embarrassed by the first version of your product, you've launched too late. So yeah, just get that feedback loop going. So we're both here in the Bay Area. And what I like to ask whenever I find founders who are still based here is, you know, why San Francisco? Is it dead? Is it dying? There's obviously a lot of media reports. I have my friends sending me these crazy videos all the time about things they're seeing in SF. So why are you still here? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, funny enough, my co-founder and I lived, we lived in the South Bay when we started Confirm. And when we started the company, we said, you know what? The action is in San Francisco. This was late 2019, so right before the pandemic. We said like the action is in San Francisco and we actually kind of left our South Bay lives behind and we, we rented a corporate apartment and moved in together to start the company in the city. And then of course the pandemic happened and everything shut down and we're both still here, not in the same apartment. We <laughs> moved out, but 
I think that there's still a lot to love about San Francisco. And I think the tech talent is coming back. I mean, some of it left. I think what's probably a bigger factor is that work is just happening in a different way now. I mean, it's just we're not going into offices in the same way that we used to. What I would say to answer your question, why are you still here? I would say it's because I like San Francisco. It's just a good quality of life. A lot of things I don't like about the city, but the things that I like, I really like. I'm with you and I'm a, I'm a huge fan of San Francisco. I just like to ask that because I get that pushback and I get those questions a lot from founders and just friends in general. But what I always yeah. tell them is like the density of founders, investors, and builders from big tech companies, like you can't beat that. You know, just around like where I live, like all of my meetings are a 10 minute walk. And when you go to these dinners or you go to have a drink, you know, you're sitting around and everyone's talking about building big tech companies. And like, I think that's just very hard to beat. And I've never seen any other city that's remotely similar to San Francisco in that way. Oh, totally. Yeah. I think some of it has like attenuated a little bit, but it's still a degree that you just won't get any place else in the world. Final question for you. Let's zoom out three to five years into the future. What's the big picture vision that you're building? So the mission of the company is to rightly recognize everyone for the difference they make at work. We want to be the best in the world at truly measuring the impact every single employee makes. Where we really see that going is almost toward a credit bureau of, of employee performance. You know, if you were to think about it, you may have a really long and successful you know, tenure at a company, but when you leave that company and you go out into the job market, you're pretty much on equal footing with everybody else. You are going to explain to the next potential employer and the next potential employer why you really are <laughs> who you say you are, why you really are exceptional. And what we really envision is being able to take that performance data and actually make it portable so that you could actually go to a prospective employer, not just say, no, 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 I'm really great, you know, take my word for it, but to be able to say, you know what, 62 people in, in my previous organization went to me for help and advice, and this is what they asked me about. You know, it was Python, it was whatever, JavaScript, or to be able to say, yeah, I was a 92nd percentile contributor in my previous organization. Here's the methodology and here's the data that shows that. That's what we get excited about. So I would say in our, in our long-term vision, you know, we're, we're really building this, this sort of talent bureau of employee performance. Amazing. Love the vision. I've really loved this conversation. We are up on time, so we're going to have to wrap here. Before we do, if there's any founders that are listening in and want to follow along with your journey, where should they go? Go to confirm.com or just reach out to me, josh at confirm.com. Awesome. Josh, thanks so much for taking the time. That's been a lot of fun. Yeah, anytime. Thanks for having me. All right, keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 